The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, check out the latest trends in spring and summer ladies' fashions and learn how Major League Baseball has become more accessible. Welcome to ACB Reports for March 2013. Though blizzards continue to pound much of the country as ACB Reports goes into production, it's only natural to have longing thoughts of the coming spring. With that in mind, Lynn Cooper of the Mirrors Project says spring and summer have arrived, at least in the stores and shops of your community. Here's Lynn's report on spring and summer fashion trends for ladies. There are about 10 major trends. Some of them involve colors and prints, some of them involve silhouettes. Number one is graphic prints. Graphic meaning big, geometric, animal prints, checks. Checkerboard is bigger than ever. Now, these are two colors, usually, black and white, red and black, blue and black, yellow and red, whatever. But they are very large. And so it's something that, once again, as I always give this disclaimer, I'm going to give it again, that these are not looks we suggest be worn to work or purchased for an everyday look. These are things that are theater on the runway and that are interpreted and distilled, if you will, and often diluted down to what we do buy in our local stores. We also are seeing, with uh, graphic prints in mind, photo transfer prints. Mary Katsantru, who is a Greek designer who is just taking the fashion world by storm, a few years ago, imagine taking a photograph of, let's say, your garden. And what she did is she transferred that to fabric, and it's really quite exquisite. That's a very big look. Needless to say, designers have followed that trend. And even insofar as your lower-end stores, what these designers are doing now is designing a limited-edition line. Prabal Gurung, a young designer, just launched at Target on the 10th of February. And those pieces are moderately priced, and yet they are designed by this famous designer. So it's a wonderful way to inexpensively, your average piece is $25. I don't think there's anything other than the uh, leather jacket, more than 50 so that's a nice way to get an updated designer piece in your wardrobe and you're not investing a whole bundle so that you're you know, having to wear something out of date just to get your cost per wear down. The second look is pencil skirts. Essentially, it is at your regular waist, a narrow waistband, and then it hugs your body to and tapers to the knee. It is at the knee, covers the kneecap or a few inches lower, and because it is so narrow, it often will have what's known as a little kick pleat, a little opening in the back at the hem in order to allow you to walk. That's a very lovely look. It's elegant. It is easy to wear. And it also is something that is not so high or so long as to not be practical. Uh, the length that's most shown is at the knee or just below. Remember, we don't want it to be just above the knee because our kneecaps are, for most of us, not our most flattering part of the body. So we want it to just cover our kneecap, and that also guarantees that when we sit, we're not uh, wearing a skirt that's too short since our skirts hike up four to five inches. 
when we sit. Another trend is bright fluorescent neon colors, referring to like a neon sign. We used to call them in the 70s when we had our black light posters and paintings on velvet. We used to call them day glow colors. Or actually in the 70s, I think they used to call them acid colors as well. They are bright, bright, bright. If you imagine ramping up a primary color. Once again, it's theater. These are for signature pieces. Usually if you wear a bright color like this, it's going to be color blocked. You're not going to wear a lot of colors and a lot of different colored pieces. If you do wear one of these bright fluorescent colored pieces, usually it'll be paired with black or pure white. So that'll be the statement. Bomber jackets, and we've talked about these in the past. Bomber, B-O-M-B-E-R, referring to airplane bombers, you know, what the pilots used to wear in the 40s. And these are with the elastic fabric gathered cuff at the waist and then a zipper. Needless to say, they are oversized, they are very narrow, they're embellished, but that's a look. That's kind of fun. That's not a bad investment if it's not too trendy in color or detail. And white, woo-hoo-hoo, white, 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 white. What a surprise, right? But if our listeners have heard me talk about color psychology, White is kind of risky in that white is the color of dentists and nurses and all of that. It also is probably the most impractical color unless one has 9,000 pieces in their wardrobe and they just wear it once because it easily, as you can all imagine, gets uh, dirty very quickly. And if we are not able to always monitor visually our clothing condition and stains and spots, it's real easy to let those get away from us. But this is a very big look. And if one does wear white, it's white from head to toe. And you can wear either a nude color shoe, a tan, or if you want to make a real statement, black. Bermuda shorts. Now, those are words that um, I'm sure we've heard before. Bermuda short referring to something that's at our natural waist. Very classical, very Brooks Brothers, very, you know, inoffensive, not terribly dramatic. It is structured, pleated, maybe belt loops with a belt. And it's to the knee or just above, and these are shorts, and they're very wide leg. They're solids or prints. The seventh big trend is the 1960s, and wow, what a surprise designers are looking in the rearview mirror. Often a place they uh, get their inspiration. There we see looks that are very reminiscent of the 60s, micro minis. Then we see halter tops, and that's where it's gathered behind your neck, and then it's cut away so you don't have any sleeves, and it's cut then on an angle under your armpit. Halter tops, whether they be dresses or just tops themselves, a very big look. And then those are done in these large paisley prints and the geometrics that are reminiscent of the 60s. Stripes, very, very, very big look. And these are not for the uh, timid. These are stripes like at least one or two inches plus wide. They are horizontal for the most part. They are also shown running vertically. Two contrasting colors, just the way we talked about the geometric prints, and they are big. So if you want to add a piece of this, go to these fashion-forward stores, H&M, Target, what have you, and maybe just a T-shirt. I would not suggest one go too wild in this because, you know, the horizontal stripes are going to make us look wider if that's something we need to be aware of. But also, it is such a powerful, impactful look that we have to be careful and judicial in how we apply it, shall we say. Then we have our ninth big look, which is cropped slacks. 
you know, not new. We're not rewriting history books here. Cropped slacks. Cropped meaning just that, uh, shortened. And these are on average two inches above the ankle. They are usually with a slight bell, a tiny slight bell from the calf down to the uh, ankle. And uh, they are not in the wide leg. We don't see any wide leg slacks that are cropped. Once again, that's a big look. And then, of course, to go back to the 1960s, our final big trend that we're seeing is flower power. Flowers in prints, those photo transfer prints I talked about, regular prints. We see embellishments. One of the designers did a leather bomber jacket, and then out of leather, it was really kind of fabulous, out of leather, um, flowers. So there's textural flowers, textural details in prints. Some have even, it looks like they've hot glued, which I know isn't the case, silk flowers onto an outfit. So you can have fun that way. Then we're going to go to what we wear with our clothing. The shoe trends, we're seeing pointed shoes. This is reminiscent of the 60s, even flats. Pointed. Now, for the longest time, we showed ballet flats and pumps and what have you in a round toe. We're still seeing the platforms, which even if it's covered or not, it's a higher heel, but it is easier to walk in because the sole of the shoe has an inch or so platform. Transparent details, we're seeing a lot of mesh fabric, so you can sort of see your skin through it. Elements being brought into shoes. Architectural shapes, once again, to go with that kind of modernistic look, the 1960s, very geometric. And ankle straps. Now, ankle straps are absolutely wonderful. I happen to think they're fabulous. If you have a couple things, and, you know, anybody can wear them. This is just an aesthetic uh, thought, that if your ankle is on the thin side, they're great, and if your calf is a little longer. Otherwise, ladies, they will cut you off. Any line that goes horizontal is where the eye stops. So if you choose to, you can go with a nice uh, shoe that doesn't have the ankle strap because that is really best on a long, thin calf. Then we've got handbags, clutches, and those are bags that are carried in your hand, and they're structured. That's very, very big. And then we see handbags, and I'm capitalizing and italicizing and bold-facing the word hand. They are not slung over your shoulder. Literally couldn't find one shoulder bag on the runway. These are carried in your hand or over your elbow, inside of your elbow. They are structured. In a little larger format, we could call them totes, but there's no way anybody's going to be carrying their shoes to work in these bags. So it's once again kind of a throwback to what was shown in the 60s. Nobody did the shoulder bags and the big hobos and the totes or the backpacks in the 60s. Also, let me go back a second and mention a few things about shoes that I neglected to mention. Transparent, meaning like a lucite, clear plastic heels, clear plastic straps, and we're seeing chunkier heels and soles. So essentially, once again, it's almost anything goes in shoes. Jewelry, big, oversized, I mean oversized, like coffee table size. Bold statement pieces. If you're wearing a modern uh, designed outfit, you know, one of those 60s geometric, very clean, these are the statement pieces. And the earrings are humongous. They're what we call chandelier earrings, and they are the focal point, certainly. Uh, And they are really not to compete with the outfit. So the simpler lines of your outfit, the wilder you can go with jewelry. And then cuffs, which are bracelets, big bold, modern, 
it's kind of fun. Then we're also seeing headbands. Everything from what looks like a scarf with the elastic behind your ears or um, a regular headband with a bow. It's, It's interesting. Hair, this season... There are a couple different looks. One predominant theme, Mike, is very, very, very straight and long. Now, have fun. If these looks appeal to you and you want to have some fun, I would say go to a wig shop. Do not invest necessarily in human hair, hundreds and hundreds of dollars. But, you know, if you want to play with the looks such as colored hair, light pastels in these uh, semi-permanent or in some cases permanent dyes, are fun, but, you know, try out a wig for fun before you invest in something like that because they certainly don't uh, go in every office setting. Uh, There's also, as I said, the super straight hair and long. With that in mind, a wet look. You take product, as they call it, a mousse or a gel, and it's back off of your face and just swept all back. It can be long. It can be in a low-slung ponytail. Ponytails are very big. They're not high on the head. They're long. They're behind your ears, a low rather. 60s updos, and that's where it's teased a little bit, and it is back in that low slung ponytail, but it's very, very reminiscent of the 1960s, and of course that hairdo would be worn with your 60s trend outfits. Low slung buns, and these are buns, you know, that we wear, whether it be a French twist or actual bun itself, where you take the ponytail, wrap the uh, hair around and then fasten it with clips or bobby pins. Those are not worn high on the head. They are, once again, where the ponytails are low behind the ears. And then center parts. Center parts are big. Not the most flattering on everybody, in my estimation, but I would say this is about the most comprehensive look at what is on the runway and now in magazines and the pages are full of these top trends for spring and summer women's ready-to-wear. So have fun. Lynn will return in April with the spring and summer report for men. Visit Lynn at her website, lynncooper.us. That's L-Y-N-N-C-O-O-P-E-R dot U-S. Send your suggestions or comments regarding ACB reports to the American Council of the Blind, 2200 Wilson Boulevard, Suite 650, Arlington, Virginia, 22201. Traditionally, the beginning of spring training will find most baseball fans reaching for their best radio in order to keep up with their favorite team. Now, thanks to the efforts of the American Council of the Blind and Major League Baseball, your favorite baseball team is as near as your computer keyboard. During the opening session of the Conference and Convention of the American Council of the Blind last summer in Louisville, ACB member Brian Charlson introduced a discussion of the accessibility of the MLB.com website. I would like to introduce to you Caleb Olin, who works for all of that user interface stuff that makes the difference between accessibility and absolute hair-pulling frustration. So please welcome Caleb to the microphone.
First of all, on behalf of Major League Baseball, I want to thank the ACB for having us here. It's an honor to be here. We're proud of the relationship, and I'm very excited to be standing in front of you guys. So thank you very much. We really appreciate that from the top level of the organization on down. I'll give you a little bit of history about uh, MLB and the division that I work for called Major League Baseball Advanced Media. Baseball Advanced Media was formed in 2000 with the unanimous support of all 30 Major League clubs as well as the Commissioner's Office. Uh, at that time, all of the clubs as well as the corporate offices were supporting their own websites and that seemed a little inefficient. So they spun off my division and we launched uh, the entire revamped architecture and sites on opening day in 2001. Since then, we've been pioneers in the fields of live streaming, in the fields of user interface, we hope, in the fields of flash development, and a whole bunch of other geek speak. But one of the things that we take pride in, we're one of the first to really push accessibility and make it a permanent part of our development process. So when we build new products, new architectures, new articles, whatever, Accessibility is a part of that process from the top to the bottom, and I think that that's something that we're pioneering as well. My particular team, which is the front-end development team, we handle the interface when customers of any type of client come to any of our sites. MLBAM, Baseball Advanced Media, we have about 550 employees. About half of those are IT. So we have a whole lot of computer people working and uh, our accessibility effort has involved, among other things, educating all of those people. So we brought outside consultants in. We've worked with the Carroll Center, worked with the ACB to try to educate our community from the top down. To give you a sense of what that is, it's MLB.com, which is our main portal, every single major league team website, so that's 30, and then a whole array of other portals from live streaming that may not be baseball-related that we host, as well as every single minor league website, and that's over 180 websites, all of which have been upgraded in terms of accessibility. So it's a lot of people, and it's a lot of work, and it's an ongoing effort. You've well described all of the team members involved in accessibility and all the other aspects of an online enjoyment of a major league sport. What kind of changes have you made at that master website that has affected all these other websites? I tried to explain to Red Sox fans that as I'm working on MLB, I'm really working on Red Sox. And unfortunately, that means I'm also working on Yankees. That's go right. ahead. That's right. First of all, to give you an idea, anything that we make that goes to one site goes to every site. And that's a rule that has been imposed, and I think successfully for many years in MLB. So any of these upgrades that we make, as you said, to RedSox.com, will go to Yankees.com or even KansasCityRoyals.com. To be more specific about the changes that we've made, our products are loosely speaking uh, divided into mobile products and then the more traditional, what we call wired products. That's a site that you would hit with your web browser or your screen reader or whatever. It was a happy coincidence that when we started our accessibility efforts about four years ago, that was just at the same time that mobile development and mobile products were becoming very popular and very exciting, and we sunk a lot of effort into that. The changes that we would make to our existing sites to support accessibility are the same types of changes that we would make to code or content to support mobile development. So we were able to kind of collapse those things together. When we started doing mobile development, 
all of our mobile development, all of our mobile products are fully accessible out of the box. We didn't have to go back and retrofit anything. It's really great news for us. But what that means is the challenge is for us to drag our wired site kicking and screaming into the 21st century. And so that's been the biggest challenge. And they're really a two-pronged approach. The first is, if anyone here has been to MLB.com or any of the team sites, you'll know that there's just a lot of stuff out there, and it can be overwhelming. I mean, we're talking thousands of pieces of content, thousands of data points, hundreds, maybe possibly thousands of articles published every single day. So in order to make all of those different pieces accessible, we have to do two things. One is we have to go back and comb through all of those and update them, which is a large effort. In order to do that, as I mentioned earlier with uh, educating the folks in our organization, we had to educate all of our editorial producers, our sports writers, our marketing producers, all these folks who aren't code people, had to be educated in accessible principles and ideas. The second thing is we had to architect technological solutions so that as much as possible, going forward, our content creators never have to think of that. So you guys use screen readers, screen magnifiers, a whole host of things to consume our website. But on the other side, we have a whole bunch of different web browsers, and we have hundreds of different variants of mobile clients. So for us, device fragmentation is something we wrestle with all the time. So the changes that we put in motion to make MLB.com and our affiliated sites more accessible are the same changes that we have to make in order to support that wide array of devices. Those types of things might be more descriptive markup. They might be uh, providing links to skip content that you don't want to consume, like for instance, miles of navigation, you, a screen reader now can have a, a link that will just bypass all of that for you. Um, our form labels are bigger. We have fallback content in case a device is not capable of consuming, whether it's flash video or some type of dynamic scripting that's going on, something that's fancy. Now it's mandated that all of those fancy things that we do have to fall back so that it's fully supported across all devices. And that's an ongoing effort. Another thing that matters to me and to a lot of sports fans out there, although we're really into baseball, we're into other sports as well. Can you give any advice to the other leagues on what they should be doing at this point in time? We were the pioneer in live event streaming, and we to date have streamed more live games than any other league in any other sport. We're proud of that. And so I think that combined with our accessibility efforts... Uh, have taught us some things that perhaps some other sports or other types of online content could learn from. The first is that the changes we make for accessibility are not retrograde. And by that I mean it's not going backwards in terms of technology. If anyone here pays attention to technology, you know that what's prized is what's sleekest and newest and shiniest. Regardless if it's better than what was there before, in technology it always seems that what's newest is what's prized. So when we made these changes for accessibility, we didn't want to roll back. We didn't want to go backwards. But when we started looking at the types of changes that were recommended, whether they were from outside consulting groups or experts on the topic that we brought in, those changes were all cutting edge. So the changes that we had to make to support accessibility really made all of our products more cutting edge. And for us, for the development team, that was great. We welcomed the accessibility challenge because it gave us a reason to get in there and really start using new technologies, whether it be HTML5 or Area or some of these other technologies. So that's one thing that I would advise to other sports or the IT departments and other sports is that the accessibility effort is an innovative technological web 2.0 effort. I know that a lot of people, when they think about accessibility on websites, relative to baseball, are talking about streaming the audio. 
what kind of changes have been made to make life better for those who are low vision yes. users of your websites? Sure. Our audio product is a subscription product. It's one of our core products, and um, you guys should all try it out. The first thing we've done is streamlined our links to the endpoint where you would consume a live game, whether it's via audio or, or some other type of media player. So just getting there, getting to those links, that was a challenge to streamline that process. The second thing is once you're in the player environment, then we had to make some changes there. And we brought in some outside experts, Flash experts, and um, really knew their stuff. And so what they had to do is make the internals of our video player more accessible. So all the controls, your fast forward, your pause, your instant replay, your, all of those things uh, had to be uh, re-architected and re-engineered um, in order to make them more accessible. So those are the two main things. The player itself was upgraded, and then the process to get into the player in the first place. I guess lastly, I'm interested in this whole future process. You know, we were talking uh, before the presentation this evening about old code, new code, spaghetti code, that kind of thing. And, and the programmers out there know what I'm talking about. It's all this issue of downward compatibility while trying to do the newest, latest, and greatest thing. What kind of changes do you, separate of MLB, you as a person writing code, what are you looking forward to in the next couple of years that we should be keeping an eye out for? A large part of my job, and, and I sit in my office and write code most of the time, and one of the most maddening things, my job, is having to support different devices. You write a piece of code, it works on one device, it blows up on another device. And that might be because one of, or more of those devices are old or obsolete, or because they're just different. And I think one thing that we'll be seeing in web clients, and whether that's a screen reader or a tablet device, it makes no difference to us, but I think you'll start seeing a standardization of the way those clients interact with online content. And that's really important because right now, if we only had to support one web browser, we could probably lay off half of our development team. It's a big problem. It's a big effort. And I think that the strategies that we're using to support accessibility are the same strategies that Major League Baseball will use going forward, regardless of the realm that we're developing in. Well, I want to thank you for being here, for Major League Baseball's involvement. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Thank you. Brian Charlson and Caleb Olin were recorded in Louisville, Kentucky in July 2012. been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.